All right. This is episode two of the Logo Soup podcast. I am your host, Soup. Today, we are going to talk about the anima archetype in Jungian psychology and Taylor Swift, just for a little bit. So uh, we're going to cover the concept of the anima, the definition, and Jung's experiences with the archetype through his visions and writings. I'm going to touch on a few of my dreams, and I'm going to discuss how it relates to the concept of synchronicity. So Jung defined the anima as the contrasexual anthropomorphic archetype in the unconscious. What that means is that the anima is, so a man has a feminine anima image and a woman would have a masculine animus image. And the two archetypes are representations of the repressed or unconscious feminine aspects in the male psyche or the masculine aspects of the female psyche. And <clears throat> the anima is... Uh, an image that will appear in dreams and narratives and movies and stories as uh, the guide to higher self-consciousness. A prime example in this is Beatrice in Dante's Inferno. Beatrice is the muse that caused Dante to reflect on his life and his sins. And in the story, Beatrice appears to the character Dante and warns him that if he doesn't repent and live a godly life, that he would not go to paradise with her. Now, this is a really great example of the anima image, is in a painting by Gustave Doré. I said his name wrong, but you should be able to find it. To those of you that don't know, Carl Jung is a Swiss psychologist, or was a Swiss psychologist, and one of the pioneers of psychoanalysis. He is the founder of the analytical school of psychology and created many, many popular concepts and, and well-accepted concepts like uh, personality types and the collective unconscious and unconscious archetypes. Now, between the years of 1913 and 1916, he had a number of visions, visionary experiences that um, would occur when he was in deep meditative states. And he recorded these visions in uh, a red journal that has been recently published as the Red Book, also called Liber Novus, the new book. And these recount a number of visionary experiences where he spoke with and encountered the archetypes of the unconscious, different characters that represented different pieces of his psyche. Um, one of these stories, one of these chapters, is called The Castle in the Forest. Basically, Carl Jung is walking in a forest in this vision when he comes across a castle he approaches the castle and knocks on the door, uh, looking for a place to stay. And when a servant lets him in and takes him to the, the housemaster's quarters, he meets an old man in his study doing work and reading. 
And the old man is very distracted and doesn't give Jung very much attention. But eventually he has the servant guide Carl Jung to a bedroom where he could sleep. Uh, but for reasons Carl Jung didn't understand, he couldn't fall asleep in the vision. And eventually, after torturous hours of insomnia, a woman comes to the door. And she claims that she is the daughter of the old man. And Carl Jung finds this to be cliched. He knows he's in a vision. And he's a little confused that there would just be this cliche of an old man's daughter that can't leave the castle. Um, and he tells her that she's not real. He insists that she's not real. And she, she weeps and insists that she is real. Now, once he accepts that she's real after a lengthy exchange, um, he's fascinated by her. Um, I'll read to you the end of their exchange and the narrative section of the chapter. Jung said, uh, rather, the woman says, the more uncommon the highest truths are, the more inhuman must they be, and the less they speak to you as something valuable or meaningful concerning human essence and being. Only what is human, and what you call banal and hackenide, contain the wisdom that you seek. The fabulous does not speak against me, but for me, and proves how universally human I am, and how much I too not only need redemption, but also deserve it. For I can live in the world of reality as well as or better than many others of my sex. Jung replies, Strange maiden, you are bewildering. When I saw your father, I hoped he would invite me into a scholarly conversation. He did not, and I was aggravated at him because of this, since his distracted slackenness hurt my dignity. But with you, I find it much better. You give me matters to ponder. You are uncommon. She says, you are mis mistaken. I am very common. Jung says, I can't believe that. How beautiful and worthy of adoration is the expression of the, your soul in your eyes. Happy and enviable in this, is this man who will free you. She says, do you love me? Jung says, by God, I love you, but unfortunately, I am already married. She says, so, you see, even banal reality is a redeemer. I thank you, dear friend, and I bring you greetings from Salome. With those words, her shape dissolves into darkness. Dim moonlight penetrates the room, 
where she stood, something shadowy lies. It is a profusion of red roses. Now, Salome was an anima character in some of the earlier visions recorded in the Red Book. Um, but after this narrative, Jung goes into a very long discussion about the anima archetype and what that means from a psychoanalytic point of view. Um, one of the fundamental um, pieces of interpreting these dreams and narratives is that the the ego character, in this case it's Jung, he's the observer, the I in the story, is all of the characters at once. But Jung is the ego, whereas the old man and the his daughter are different pieces of his unconscious psyche. And the meaning of this story, as Jung interpreted it, is an injunction against the repression of the feminine aspects of a man. The old man, in his study, is fixated on his work and is spending the, quote, evening of his life studying and working and and being a scholar who hides and represses his daughter and doesn't allow her into the world. And then his daughter begs for Carl Jung to acknowledge that she is real. Essentially, Jung is the a part of Jung is the old man that hides his feminine aspect from the world and represses it. And his anima is begging for acknowledgement that she is real. And once he acknowledges that she is real, she reveals to him a certain capacity for wisdom that he didn't believe that she would have or could have. Now, another extrapolation of this piece and an extrapolation of the idea of an archetype in general is that an archetype can be projected onto another person. The ego, for the sake of uh, reducing the complexity of social situations, and also to operate with a limited understanding of the people that the ego is encountering, will project archetypal images onto others. And the anima, an anima projection, is one of the most potent examples of these. Um, it's perhaps why an individual will see uh, when someone's infatuated with another person, they won't see a person. They'll see this flawless image of divine feminine. Now, 
Carl Jung also discussed various stages of anima development in an individual. The first stage um, he likened to the image or character of Eve in the creation story, the Christian creation story. And when an individual's anima is at that stage, they will see uh, women as uh, an image of sexual desire for reproduction, only as, um, as fertility and the, the possibility of having offspring. And then the following stage, the more developed stage, he related to Helen of Troy, who is still a, a sexual image, but includes the ideas of aesthetics and beauty and romance. And then following that is the Mary stage, which is based on the Virgin Mary, Jesus's mother. And that is still an image of um, of a sexual partner, but from a religious and spiritual devotion. And then the final stage is referred to as Sophia, who is the a pagan goddess of wisdom, similar to Athena. And she was actually adopted into the Christian canon as Christianity spread and and was adopted by pagan cultures, Sophia was adopted into a kind of metaphor, a symbolic embodiment of the Holy Spirit. And the Sophia anima cannot quite be obtained, but one can have intimations of her. Um, she can appear at critical times and guide the individual. And that's what the image of Beatrice is in Dante's Inferno. Now, another um, detail of the anima archetype is that the anima can be both a positive image and a, uh, a shadowy image or an evil image. And that's because the anima resides in the unconscious. And all of those unconscious images, all of those unconscious aspects, as well as the shadow aspects of the psyche, everything, all the anger or um, sexuality or mayhem that a person represses is also in their unconscious along with the anima. And that can be projected onto an individual too. Um, that's where the image of a siren or a gorgon or a harpy comes from. Those would be negative shadow aspects of the anima. And the key is that as the shadow aspects of one's psyche become conscious through a process that Jung called to as individualization, then the anima image will be more um, pure and positive. And that's a factor when uh, people encounter um, 
potential partners, for example. They would project that if one has a, a very repressed shadow, they might um, search for a person that kind of matches their vices in a negative way. So those were Jung's thoughts and how they were represented in the Red Book. Um, now I'm going to discuss a few of my dreams and how the anima images are represented there. And I'm going to start with the image of Taylor Swift, who is uh, recognizable in my profile picture on the meme page, Logo Soup. Um, I really like that profile picture because it is a good, um, a good archetypal extrapolation of Taylor Swift's persona. One of the symbols she uses in her uh, most recent album, Reputation, is a serpent. Um, and that was after she had her feud with Kanye West and Kim, and everyone spammed her Instagram comments with the snake emoji. Now, similar to the anima archetype, the archetype of the serpent is associated with an individual coming to self-consciousness. This is most clear in, um, in the Garden of Eden creation story. When Eve, tempted by the serpent, gives Adam the fruit that makes him self-conscious. So, um, it's fitting that Taylor Swift is associated with the serpent image. And then, um, I also, the dragon image is an extrapolation of the serpent. The dragon is a more, um, negative, chaotic element of the serpent. It's essentially a flying serpent that breathes fire and calls the individual hero to adventure. That's the hero myth, right? Uh, an individual is called to consciousness and goes out on a journey and fights the dragon. And that leads them to higher self-consciousness and a higher being. <clears throat> now, in the dreams where I think I'm closest to the anima image, I've spoken to Taylor Swift and she typically sits next to her piano in those dreams, which I find interesting because there's a certain feminine wisdom aspect to music. It is an a mode of communication that is nonverbal. It's more of an expression of the unconscious and a method by which the unconscious becomes conscious. So sometimes I'll have dreams where she's sitting by her piano and I'm talking to her. Um, another relevant dream would be a dream I refer to as a story of the anima death, which 
prompted me to think of the anima as a concept that can die, similar to the ego archetype. Um, the idea of an ego death is very common and popular among um, spiritual people, mystics, um, and people interested in the psychedelic experience. And so in this dream, I was at my old high school, and one of the facts about my identity that I knew was that I was Spider-Man. <laughs> and I often dream that I'm a comic book character. I'm typically either Nightwing, who is um, the first Robin, the first Batman's first apprentice, who grows up to be a more... Um, optimistic vigilante than Batman is. Um, or I dream that I'm Spider-Man, which is interesting because I very rarely read Spider-Man comic books. I read a lot of comic books with Nightwing in it. And in the future, I'm going to make podcasts about, um, more specifically about the archetypes of superhero mythology or what I call neo-mythology. But anyway, I was sitting in class in one of the tall buildings on my high school campus, and I saw an image of a girl I know floating in the air. It was just her face floating in front of me. I was, like, bored and daydreaming in the class, and I saw her. And she said, why do you always see me? Which is interesting, because I don't recall ever having a dream where I saw this particular girl which leads me to suspect that all of these characters, Taylor Swift or this girl, um, are images of the, of the archetype rather than images of an actual person that I know and speak to. Anyway, I reply with a joke and she laughs and disappears. And then her physical form stumbles out of a closet in the back of the room and collapses. And this prompts this long dream narrative adventure where I was trying to solve the mystery of how she died. And what I find most interesting about this dream is that there were no uh, Spider-Man powers that I used. I just knew that I was Spider-Man. And one of the pinnacle and most iconic stories of Peter Parker's Spider-Man was the death of Gwen Stacy, who is fundamentally an anima character. She is Peter Parker's first love, and her death in one of the comics prompts him to be uh, a more a more devoted hero. So yeah, that was another, I remember a lot of details from that dream, but it's very long. So that's, that was the important part and what I was able to interpret. And then the next dream I'll go over is a dream about three tigers. So in the dream, I was exploring my neighbor's backyard with my best friend. And 
she and I were in very tall grass, like much taller than we were. And while we were sifting through the grass and navigating our way through the backyard, um, we encountered three hostile tigers. One of them was, the first one was orange, and then the second one was white, and then the third one was black. And we were running at, away, and I made it out of the backyard, but she didn't. And I went to my garage and got a rake, which is not a very formidable weapon. Do not ever try to fight a tiger with a rake. But anyway, I got a rake, and I went back looking for her, and I kind of navigated past the tigers without agitating them. And I climbed to the top of a hill where I found her hiding and crying. And I, um, so I found her at the top of the hill, and I apologized to her for leaving her, which she was quite upset about. She felt betrayed. And I told her that I came back and that we were going to leave the backyard together, and we did. And then once I made it back to my house, she wasn't there. But I saw a woman who I knew in high school. Um, and she looked like the last time I saw her rather than the way she looks right now. And I immediately knew it was a dream. And I asked her if it was a dream. And she said yes. And then I had a conversation with her knowing that she was this image of the anima. So, yeah, so those were some interesting dreams that I had regarding the anima archetype. Some of them are more reoccurring than others, specifically the dreams where I speak to Taylor Swift beside her piano. Um, another concept I want to go into is the idea of synchronicity. A lot of people are unclear or unsure about what this term means. It was used by Jung a lot towards his more later works. Um, and it's a fairly complex, convoluted concept. Um, and I don't think I have a complete grasp of it. But essentially, Jung discussed it as... an event that is directly caused by a psychic event, meaning that something that occurs within a person's psyche, within their consciousness or unconsciousness, can cause something to manifest in the physical world. Now, I think that to... Now, this is distinguished from a coincidence because a coincidence would rather be um, an event happening and then the psyche connecting two events together, whereas synchronicities are caused by a psychic event. Now, for, for one to believe that synchronicities are possible... Um, there seems to be an axiom that needs to take place 
there there seems to be need to be an axiom that's accepted that separates the world from reality. And this would be a phenomenological axiom, point of view, interpretation of reality. It would separate the physical world of things and matter from the reality that we all live in. And it would assume that the reality we all live in is some kind of interplay between the physical world and the psychic world, the world of our, our, our psychic mind, our consciousness and our unconsciousness. And it would be constructed. Reality is constructed through that interplay. One example at Jung, uh, one potential um, example of synchronicity that Jung discussed in an essay was the UFO phenomenon. He discussed the possibility that UFOs, rather than visitors from another world, UFOs are um, a kind of collective hallucination that people experience and, and kind of manifest into reality. Um, and then a potential example of synchronicities from a Christian context are the meridian apparitions, which are certain apparitions of the Virgin Mary that the Catholic Church formally recognizes. Um, One of the most famous apparitions is the the apparition of Our Lady of Lords. In that instance, visions of the Virgin Mary appeared to Saint Bernadette when she was a teenager, uh, I believe, seventeen times, and many townspeople. the The cave where Saint Bernadette saw the visions um, became. Uh, a site of pilgrimages and many people in the town would visit. And eventually there was a well, a spring rather discovered in the, in the cave. And many people believe that the water in that cave is linked to certain miracles of healing. Um, St. Bernadette described the vision as an image of a lady in white with golden rosaries and a blue belt. Um, a more synchronistic example. Now, now the Virgin Mary would be an anima image, and a more synchronistic example of these apparitions would be in the apparitions of Our Lady of Shaluva. And according to the story, in the years leading up to fifteen thirty-two, the population in a Lithuanian town became predominantly Calvinist. And many Catholic churches were destroyed, and Catholicism was repressed in the area. And some children reported that they saw a vision of the Virgin Mary weeping where a Catholic church once stood. 
And the following day, many people in the village came and saw the apparition and uh, prayed around the vision for that day. And after the event, a man who had helped bury church treasures to, pr to protect them uh, recalled the place where they were buried. And he and the other townspeople recovered a number of documents and items. Um, these, uh, th there are many apparitions that the church recognizes, but um, they seem to be an example uh, from the Jungian perspective of synchronicities, kind of manifested visions or images of of the anima that emerge from the collective consciousness of people that are experiencing similar problems or stages of development. So those are the topics I wanted to cover, and I'm going to end with a poem that I wrote recently. Um, I'm a little rusty with my poetry, but this is uh, very much inspired by the Jungian concept of the anima. So I'm going to read this. <clears throat> there is an ancient wishing well built upon a round marble base and surrounded by ionic pillars that hold a dome against the heavens. It is a finite structure built alone on a boundless plane that expands forever and converges with a pastel heather sky. She is there, standing in front of the well and facing the horizon. Her back is turned to me, familiar and unknowable. She's an Elysian figure, draped in a thin teal dress with long golden hair that falls in delicate curls. I step onto the marble building and approach her as one always does. I can come just beyond arm's reach. And then she walks in an endless path around and around the wishing well. I follow her forever, a journey bounded inside the columns. With each lap under the dome, the circle slowly closes. Gravity draws us to the center, and after forever, we arrive at the well. And then there is no she nor I. There is only a wishing well, unfathomably deep, beneath eternity's dome. This is episode two of Logo Soup. Thank you for listening.